Hello everyone, this is Molly Rowan Leach of Molly Rowan Presents. I am your host for the ongoing telecouncil series, Restorative Justice and Social Healing in the United States and Beyond. This archive, featuring Dr. Don Beck, was from Thursday, January 12, 2012. As many of you know, Dr. Don Beck is a systems thinker and an author He's written a couple very powerful books, Spiral Dynamics, Mastering Values, Leadership, and Change, written with Christopher Cowan in 1996, as well as The Crucible, Forging South Africa's Future, in 1991, with Graham Linscott. Dr. Beck has seen a lot of ground and has offered his systems thinking and structures to many diverse places in our world. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation we had with him. And for more information about this series and the archives from this series, go to mollyrowanpresents.com. Thank you. Good evening, everyone, and such a warm welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach of Molly Rowan Presents. And I am delighted to be your ongoing host for this restorative justice and social healing in the United States and beyond telecouncil series. And before I introduce tonight's just astounding guest speaker and conversationalist, um, I'd like to just say a few words of welcome again to this substantial group gathered. Um, if you've never been in a maestro room before, um, the way that you can ask questions, and I'd, I'd like to ask you specifically um, tonight, as, as we're going, Don has a lot to share tonight. Um, we'll be conversing on, on various topics surrounding the heart of justice, spiral dynamics, and his work in South Africa and such. But if you have a question and you'd like to just uh, press 1 on your telephone keypad, uh, that way we can be you know, organic with our conversation and, and be inclusive of everyone gathered as much as we can. Um, this is a recorded call, as are all of the teleseries calls. They're posted at my website, which is mollyrowanpresents.com. And it's an honor, a deep, deep honor tonight to welcome our very special guest, Dr. John Beck. And I'd like to just say a few words about Don. Um, tonight's program focus, first of all, with Don is at the heart of justice, the role of spiral dynamics and beyond in societal and global transformation. And uh, my thoughts on Dr. Don Beck, um, just, I, I've been following his work for, for years now. And his book, Spiral Dynamics, of course, deeply influenced me. And I, I was really just amazed after chatting with him further. Uh, I hadn't realized the expanse of his work in, in prisons and, and also the fact that he was instrumental in um, influencing de Klerk to release Nelson Mandela and, and the um, South African Truth and Reconciliation work. And so it, it's, it's really a pleasure to have him here with us tonight to offer such depth to this field of restorative justice. And I'd just like to say um, a few words about his official bio. Um, he has been developing, implementing, and teaching the evolutionary theory of spiral dynamics for more than three decades and has elaborated upon the work of his mentor, Claire Graves, to develop a multidimensional model for understanding the evolutionary transformation of human values and cultures. As co-founder of the National Values Center and CEO of the Spiral Dynamics Group, he is employing the Spiral Dynamics model to affect large-scale systems change in and among various sectors and societies of the world. And of course, as I mentioned a moment ago, he is the author of the very well-known, internationally renowned Spiral Dynamics, Mastering Values, Leadership, and Change, written with Christopher Cowan in 1996. He also has a long consulting career, including work with Tony Blair's Policy Unit and the World Bank um, to consider the future of Afghanistan. 
of course, he also, as I mentioned, worked um, with the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission and was over there uh, 63 trips uh, between 1981 and 88. He helped to create a bridge of peaceful transition from apartheid to, to the democracy. And you know, I could go on and on about Don, and I know a lot of you know well his work, but I just want to encourage you, if you don't, to please make sure to visit his two websites. One is for the Center for Human Emergence, and that's humanemergence.org, and his Spiral Dynamics website, which is spiraldynamics.net, www.spiraldynamics.net. So without any further ado, I just would like to warmly welcome you, Don, tonight, and um, all of you gathered here. It's great to be here. Well, thank, <clears throat> thank you, Molly. And I've seen quite a few of the names of people who are listening. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people who know me pretty well, so I can't get by with anything tonight. Uh, your name, Molly, interested me because I was a high school football player when I got my shoulder pretty well destroyed when I was a junior. And in fact, it still hurts, as some of you know. Uh, and I was a stutterer, which means I was not very verbal. So I went to a speech class at Purcell High School, and my teacher was named Molly, Molly Martin. Molly Martin got hold of me and didn't turn me loose. She just insisted that I be on the debate team. And I think if huh. that hadn't happened, then I probably would have done what I've done foolishly around the world. But, you know, it's a strange way that people impact us. But no one who knew me back in Purcell, Oklahoma, there were 30 in my graduating class, would have thought that I would leave the McLean County line, much less go to South Africa. So it, it proves that we are genetically impacted, my mom and dad for sure, and then the early experiences with them all contributed to what I have ultimately become, and that's true with all of us. And so we stand on the shoulder of giants, and we need to always remember that with as much humility as we can muster. So I'm, I'm glad to be with you. I have quite a different point of view regarding uh, social justice and healing. In fact, it was funny that my good friend Mike Jay sent me a note. Those of you who know Mike Jay, he is as red egocentric as they come. He says, Beck, have you turned green? <laughs> green means soft, egalitarian, humanistic. And after all these years, so I, I wrote back and said, of, of course not, but how could anyone be green around you, Jay? So th those who know the color uh, scheme will, of course, maybe chuckle at that kind of story. No, I've, I've not turned green because I, I don't think that we can resolve many of these issues through that system, even though it's warm and it's, it's had a, a great impact on, me, on many people. But unfortunately... It doesn't go far enough to really deal with the dynamics in our culture that, number one, generates the high levels of, of, of lawlessness, and number two, uh, makes it difficult for us to respond to the victims of that kind of crime. It's interesting that the Netherlands closed yet another prison. The only society I know that closes prisons. Here in Texas, our, our fifth-level orange uh, materialistic system builds them and then needs to convince the state legislature that they need a lot of criminals as, as guests in their hotels. And so it perpetuates that problem. Yet in the Netherlands, they're closing prisons. I have, I have a lot of Dutch friends. In fact, I have Dutch genetics, and I've been there often and even worked with the Dutch police on several occasions, so I'm very conversant with the nature of that society. But why is it, I'm going to ask the group tonight, why is it that the Dutch are closing their prisons? Think about that a minute as compared to what's happening in this country. Well, my point is, and I want to use South Africa as an example. 
I saw yesterday an article in the New York Times that there was a mass riot as hundreds of thousands of South Africans uh, flooded into higher education because they want to get ahead. But there aren't places for them, and there aren't jobs for them when they come out, which means the way the whole South African thing was handled has produced a situation where there are millions of people with high expectations but no place to go. That's why I was a bitter opponent of sanctions, which really didn't make me very popular in parts of this country and, and UK, because I saw ahead what was going to happen. So easy for us, you see, out of a, oh, a very warm, positive, egalitarian system to have opposed apartheid and the evil South African racist regime and wanting to get rid of it, as if getting rid of what we don't want is not the same thing as getting what we do want. So when Graham Linscott, a, a very fine South African journalist, and I wrote the book The Crucible, Forging South Africa's Future, we warned that unless we began to understand the deep value systems, not the skin color, not the ethnicity, and I'm proudly a Zulu, but to look beneath those categories, those stereotypes, and see the, the core value structures, belief systems, worldviews, because ultimately they are going to bleed through in spite of our attempts to impose a one-person, one-vote view of democracy over that particular contour. Same thing is happening as my friend Elza Malouf and Saeed talked today about Egypt, why Egypt wanting democracy, but what kind? What lurks beneath the surface of the Nile in terms of these belief uh, systems? So. I view the world then through these colors. The colors have no significance at all. Uh, this is not a chakra color scheme. But what we look at in dynamics then are not the usual categories. We see the value structures, the belief systems as they form in individuals and as they form in clusters in cultures. And we think and plan and design based on those, not the usual categories. So I can get you to think about that in this uh, session tonight, uh, we can make great progress. Otherwise, you will interpret what I'm saying through the lens of the pre-existing mindsets that you came with tonight. Now, there's not much I can do about that. If we were in, in a workshop, I'd hand you my famous uh, yellow glasses uh, that are, I think cost a buck each, but you look through them and you see the spectrum of colors. So I say in a, in a workshop, now I'm going to have to teach you today how to look through yellow glasses. Because if you do that, and they all put them on, and, and they really looked foolish when they did, and looked at the light, and, and saw, saw the spectrum of colors. So that's what I want you to be able to see. And that same thing goes tonight. If I can get you to look through those lenses and understand how change happens in a kaleidoscopic kind of turn. Then when we begin to approach some very, very serious problems, we're going to look at it differently. I did make 63 trips to South Africa. Uh, when I first got there by accident, more than by design, I was invited by a South African mining engineer named Keith Van Heerden. He was here in Dallas speaking at the Society of Value Engineering, and I spoke 15 minutes on value systems. He said, uh, well, would you come to South Africa and give that speech? I said, of course. I never thought I'd, I'd hear back. But once I got there, particularly riding in the game reserves and reading the Star and Citizen newspapers, I began to see the colors. I thought it was a civil rights issue, but it wasn't. It was about something entirely different. So that's what inspired me to stay in the hunt and over time to write the book Crucible and then ultimately to impact 
what became the movie Invictus in working with the South African national rugby side, the Springbok, in the 1995 World Cup that resulted in that movie with Mandela. In fact, to be honest, I planned that role that he did while he was still in prison. He didn't know about it. I, I figured that if I wanted to impact South Africa, I'd have to do it through rugby or religion. So I figured I had a shot at rugby. I didn't know anything about rugby, Molly. But I knew about American Yankee football, and that gave me entree into the coach, Kitch Christie. So that's how all that happened. And so today, even now, I look at South Africa through the prism of these value systems. You want me to keep talking about it? Uh, I, th this is very rich and robust, and you, you've set the tone in multiple ways, Don, already for us to perhaps um, put on some new glasses, so to speak. But um, I'm wondering if you might just speak a few words about, uh, just to set, set another aspect of the tone. As I mentioned in my introduction tonight, one of the things that I actually didn't know much about in your work was what you're doing in in the in the prison system here stateside, and can you just say some words about how spiral dynamics interlinks intersects with uh, with your view of the the criminal justice system as it stands and where it might help it to transform? Okay. Well. Once again, looking through the prism of value system codes, then one looks at the underlying behavior patterns of what we call criminals and can see their dominant codes. So when we designed the entire probation process in Texas, trained all the probation officers, what we said was rather than uh, use one of those ice cream kind of Take a number. What if we sorted people based on their value systems, which means we identified among the probation officers those who had the ability to deal with various value systems. Some can handle the red, rebellious, angry kind of system much better than others. So what we would do is do a quick inter uh, interview of the probationer and then we would match probationer with probation officer. What that produced was a, a, a rapid process of integration and conformity to the rules and regulations, so shorten the time when a person would be uh, in probation, and then shorten the time when that person would show up in prison again. You see, we did a natural matching rather than one, one size fits all or who is next. And that's, that's the important thing because each, each human being has a, a, a mix of value uh, categories. So the extent to which the whole criminal justice system can recognize those and provide uh, therapy and healing and rehabilitation based on those, to that extent, we're much better off. I used to use the, the movie uh, Brubaker constantly in, in training programs for Amoco uh, executives. I suggest that, that you take a look at it because you'll see in the hero Robert Redford, you'll see a lot of the seventh level integrated code of adapting to those uh, conditions. So that's, that's a kind of application. I've had recently two letters from prisons, from prisoners, one in Tucson and one I'm not quite sure where it was. That would you come to our prison and teach us spiral dynamics? Because we prisoners think it can help us. So I sent packages to both, and I understand both were turned down by the, the prison warden. I guess they're, they're frightened of it, and that's not uh, uh, unusual. So my experiences in life over time in law enforcement and designing crisis intervention training for uh, Dallas Police Department and selecting the public safety officers at DFW Airport. Since my dad and, and uncle were attorneys, as was my brother-in-law, I had a pretty close connection to the whole legal profession. 
So I obviously I'm kind of a natural helper, and to that extent, my J is probably correct. Yet I don't believe in in victimizing people. Uh, I'm not soft in terms of that, but I do believe in designing the structures that naturally deal with the differences in people and to recognize those differences in order to provide for them the maximum impact, call it tough love, call it adaptive systems, whatever you choose to call it, that can up the odds of them improving. No guarantee, of course. And because of the current brain research and the biology of the brain that Bruce Lipton and others talk about, we are beginning to recognize the role that brain chemistry plays in the formation of worldviews. And almost a new report comes out daily. So I think in the future we'll pay much more attention to that dynamic because it's one of the factors that produces the behavioral patterns. But overall, I think it's critical that we begin to look at our children and insist on what I like to call moral uh, development and not be overly permissive with them, realize that they have to be accountable. Some will slip uh, away from us. But, but by and large, society itself has to recognize the need for old George W.'s orientation, which many today reject from a progressive viewpoint. But, but the fact is, until that system is strengthened again in our youth, then we will continue to fill the prisons. I have a special interest in African-American kids. For years I worked in South Chicago in the high schools where we did things that dropped the dropout rate from 10% to 60%. We did so once again by recognizing value systems. And even during recess, we'd have squads of kids out marching using drill sergeant veterans in, in the neighborhood in order to develop the kinesthetic system and would be teaching math to them while they were doing the marching. The point is there's so much that can be done that's, that's not lethal, that's not punishment, that's responsible to prevent the large number of kids who end up in prison. And the fact that there are more African-American teenagers and uh, college age in prison than in college is simply unacceptable. Well, there's guilt enough to go around. And so some of my friends at the Mimosine Foundation in Dallas and I have been talking about the Second Emancipation Proclamation, the one with uh, Abraham Lincoln. But this one is to free the kids from the, the kind of industries that have grown up around the struggle. Well, obviously, I, I like uh, Bill Cosby, and sometimes uh, Jesse Jackson and his cohorts uh, drive me crazy. But what, what we're saying here, and I learned at Paul Robertson High School when on the black kids said, uh, Dr. Beck, we, we're very good in math, but if we don't say that, then our mates will say that we're acting white. That just made me furious. So there's so much can be done today to address that gap between African-American and so-called Anglo and Hispanic kids, and, there's, and we're simply not doing it. And I hope the day will come when we'll shift from the blame and be blamed and from the live and let live into the thrive and help thrive. And, th and that movement is long, long overdue. I just want to take a moment, too, to welcome everyone, again, if you've just arrived. Um, at the outset of tonight's call, I mentioned that throughout tonight, if you have a question for Don, just simply press 1 on your telephone keypad, and I'll do the best I can to, um, to pause and uh, allow you to reflect or ask a question. So that, again, that's 1 on your keypad, telephone keypad. We'll just, we'll just have that standing for tonight's call throughout. 
Um, so anyway, Don, I, I, I'd like to just ask you a little bit about what you spoke to surrounding that fear that, uh, you know, that some of the, the wardens in these prisons um, have turned down some of the materials you've, you've pres- that, that have actually been requested by prisoners from within. I, I'm wondering um, what your take is on how, uh, wh- whatever that is, that, that fear within this system, and there also seems to be a, a, a blockage in the system that perhaps is interlinked with wh- what the true motivation of the justice system is. Um, I, my argument personally would be that it's motivated by profit, and we can look to the New York Stock Exchange um, and the privatization of the prison industrial complex corporations for a clear answer on that one. But um, it seems to go beyond even that, and that we're looking at what you pointed to in the um, in the conversation and the worldview of of looking at each other from a new lens, um, understanding that we are uh, on an equal playing field, so to speak, and that that we are interconnected. And given that you've done so much within the system and and you come from such a unique perspective of healing, could you say a few words about that broad sweeping question? Okay, Molly, can can I play with you? Uh, yeah, let's do. Uh, are you a member of the, of the Tea Party? Uh, no. Why? What? Why not? Why not? I, I really don't know why not. Probably because uh, I I have a perspective that makes me think that it's um uh you know unreasonable, irrational, uh, and cruel to a certain degree. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> but but you're not happy with, with the capitalistic system because you just said that you thought the primary problem or cause was the was the free market generated business uh, technology and, and the whole industrial complex around crime. And of course, I agree with that. What if both of them are right? What if the reason for a Tea Party is because of fear? Mm-hmm. What happens? What happens when you attack them? Mm-hmm. We fear. Right, exactly. It's reciprocating. See, that's why the extreme left breeds the extreme right, and the extreme right breeds the extreme left. They need each other. When we get into the game to reinforce one or the other, we reinforce both of them. So, so much of our culture today is arrested because we're trapped in stereotypes. I mean, if, if you watch uh, certainly MSNBC or, for God's sake, Fox News on, on the campaign, the way they're assessing candidates, it's just extraordinary. To me, it's tragic. All the stereotypes and the demeaning and the, and, and the viciousness, the us versus them, and the, the name-calling, even Republicans can't get themselves together, which means we have bred a culture that reinforces adversarial relationships that causes people, when they look at a group, to define the entire group by the extreme position, unable right. to see the moderate, more uh, conservative uh, viewpoints, and so we. So extreme right wing would see Clinton as a communist and left wing used to see Bush as a fascist. It's sick. So many people play that game and buy commercials to do it. You, I mean, I've just been uh, shocked at Facebook at, at the kinds of comments that I'm, I'm, I'm hearing and, and reading. It's, I mean, it's such a commentary on, on the times. I have to kind of watch myself. I sometimes have to write a response, which I did today on Tebow, on Tim Tebow, the quarterback of, of the Broncos, being oh. criticized by an atheist group because he's religious, and they claim that he uses that only to advance his career. Well, I don't think that's true. Now, there's some who do that, 
but I don't think Tebow does that. So they're unable to see this young man and put a brand on him instantly, which is a projection of their own uh, distortions. All that mixes together then, and we try to resolve issues like what to do with prisoners. Either you're called a softy or you're called a Nazi because we can't recognize the need to be functional. Ask the question functionally, what needs to happen for this human? Can we afford to provide that or not? So when some group begins to teach uh, Christianity in prisons, uh, there are groups that file suit on them. For goodness sake, that's one of the, the very few influences in our culture that introduce a blue absolutism, uh, absolutistic, conformity, guilt-driven system. So leave them alone, as old man Claire Gray used to say, Don, a person has a always damn it, damn it, a person has a right to be who they are. And I think that's extremely important. Of course, all of this gets back to child rearing and to the kinds of early experiences in neighborhoods and and I, I know I, I used to kind of laugh at the current uh, Secretary of State with her little book, It Takes a Whole Village to Raise a Child. But having worked in African villages, I like that. And that's why we rec- recommend for children annual summits on the child. It's because our little red school buildings aren't influential enough today. We have to mobilize the whole culture, the whole field. If we begin to think in those terms, and share responsibility. Mm-hmm. Build those kind of programs that look after our kids. Because there used to be a day when grandmas were in, in swings on porches. They had a switch. And if some kid misbehaved, she was on to him, whether they're her grandchildren or not. Well, it's too dangerous for grandmas to sit on porches anymore. So we have in our uh, materialism and consumerism and Need for excitement, we have forgotten what it takes to rear children. So we pay the price when they grow up and get caught with two ounces of marijuana or something and go in prison, and then they learn how to be egocentric from senior prisoners. It hardens them. When they come out, they're worse than when they went in. wonder why all that happened. I do want to talk to you briefly about Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. Two of my good friends and colleagues were commissioners, so I had some insights into what was happening. And there were some good things, and there were some very negative things that happened. Because in spite of being promised, those who got on television to Desmond Tutu and bear their soul were promised reparations which unfortunately never came. Some were suspicious this was the national, this was the ANC's party strategy to keep the national party down as architects of apartheid to remind them of all the bad things that happened. I'm not sure that's true. I don't think Mandela would do that, but I know others would. Now, one other point. I kept insisting through my good friends that rather than focusing on the bad things that police did, because while they were being exposed, truth and reconciliation, and under a great deal of pressure, lawlessness increased profoundly in South Africa, and those Nigerian and Russian hoodlums and warlords got into Johannesburg in in the, the drug for a while, we were asking people to say sorry. We let our, our guard down and created a crime rate in South Africa that's ghastly. So what I'm, I'm trying to say here as gently as I can, that sometimes our very best sensitive efforts end up making things worse. So I will, I guess to my dying day, say, let's look through the prism of value codes. 
and let's engage people not in looking at the past, but in building together. If I'd had my way, and Graham Lynn Scott and I in the book Christopher outlined a 10-year strategy of nation building. If all the energy and resources and foundation money in the country had been focused on education, health care, housing, but a vast percentage of it was corrupted, money never reached the people who needed it, famous scenarios of Royal Dutch Shell and others used in South Africa simply invited representatives of the majority to the table, in this case blacks, those that got to the table enriched themselves. So they became just as corrupt as the whites. No one was speaking for the people. No one said, before we spend any money, let's look at our vital signs monitors maps of South Africans. Let's look where the needs are. Let's build the systems here that can create a healthy society. But rather than looking at the past and trying to pay the debts for uh, past behaviors in order to equalize, so sometimes, which I unfortunately say, that a restoring justice program, unless it keeps its eyes open to the longer view, then it can do those things that unfortunately make things worse for those very people and their uh, descendants. And I know that's, that's pretty controversial in some areas, but I think over time, based on what's happening in South Africa today, it's on an internal collision course because no one was thinking long-term, even those who were putting heavy sanctions on South Africa, that's wiping out entire industries and I, I used to warn my uh, black friends, I said, oh, Don, we want sanctions. Do you realize what that's going to do to you and your children? So finally, there's a large number who've contacted me. Even one wanted me to be a Nobel Prize winner, which I thought was absurd. But they, they said, Don, you, you were right. They said, someday, Mr. Mandela and his friends, will have to apologize for sanctions, just like F.W. and the clerk had to apologize for apartheid. So what I'm, I'm trying to say as gently as I can, that until we have these new viewing lens and see beneath the surface, we will do the very best we know how to do. Doing so, making things worse. So I'm thinking a bit <clears throat> recently, and I decided just to go ahead and rename much of what we're about called the Master Code. Master Code, uh, as in Master Key that unlocks many locks. Because in the past I've been kind of timid, maybe afraid, maybe, I don't know, to really spell out what Claire Graves was saying. That's why he was able, even in looking at psychological models to say what we have to do is connect the appropriate psychological model to the appropriate person or organization. That's what I mean by a master code. Reading the situation from a vast number of possible responses, use those that are appropriate to and fit that situation, those people, those children, those prisoners, those entire countries. So what we're calling for is indeed a revolution, but one that reorganizes systems around natural design of who people are. I know, once again, that's going to upset some folks, but after teaching spiral dynamics to thousands of people around the world, I'm finally convinced that, that we're ready to do and say something that's really quite different. Wow, thank you so much, Don. And uh, I'd like to go ahead and field a question from the group gathered tonight. Uh, Charles, welcome and you're live. Hi, Don. Charles McLean with Philanthropy Now, a healthcare policy fellow in Portland. I'm very curious what your thoughts might be about 
how do we shift the conversation and the culture around personal and shared responsibility for our health, for prevention and self-care when we're in the midst of this, quote, health care reform uh, debate? Well, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've focused for some time on the large-scale uh, conditions for change. And, and that Charles, as you know, Grace Gray, has written widely about the nature of change itself and, wh and what the sequences appear to be. And it, at what point, that point is when there's enough dissonance, when we try our solutions, like uh, the one President Obama has in introduced, and if and when they fail, then new windows begin to open. I'm quite aware of, of, of health issues and sometimes say if I'd known I was going to live this, this, li this long, I'd take a better care of myself. <laughs> so I, I, I think the, the interest in patient taking care of self is, is increasing. Uh, I talked to my doctor today about that, and he's just delighted the number of people who now come in his office who've done self-control. That's why I think there's, there's so much interest in the, in, in the uh, drugs that, that you can buy over the counter. Whether that's good or bad, Charles, I, I, I can't say. But I, I think that, that we're moving into a day, and that's why there's so much interest in conditioning and all the ads that we have on workouts and so forth. But this, this primarily is, is a first world phenomenon because we have plenty to eat. I truly think that we're about to see a renaissance in this area because like all the work you've done with it and, and others like you are beginning to have a, an impact. And so I'm very encouraged about our future there. Don, a 20-year-old uh, gave me a wake-up call and she said, Charles, I have a right from her perspective, to be responsible, and that much of what's in the healthcare or sickness care system right now prevents me from really expressing some of those options, that my range of choices is limited, and it's, it's how, to, how to reframe that relationship to the word responsible, responsibility, since for some it has a, a negative valence. I think uh, responsibility also stems from the impact on, on the collective, on the community health, on what it takes in terms of, of cost from the taxpayer to make up for the kind of behavior which you have me have done, which is expensive. I think that reality also, that, that the strong, independent uh, individual must began to recognize that his or her choices will be narrow. If the cost of the machinery and other things to keep them well increases. So if we had, Charles, some politicians who would talk that kind of language, obviously be uh, stressing individual responsibility. And I, I like the idea that each one takes one, that our responsibility as, as as citizens just like the ad campaign don't let your friend drive if he's drunk that kind of encouragement on the part of individuals I think can go a long long way when this this kind of thinking uh, hits and matures in religious organizations like T.D. Jakes at Potter's House in Dallas is a wonderful example of it and I think that it will begin to, uh, to spread. But here's the important thing I've learned. If we want to do these kind of large-scale things, we have to use the full spiral. Purple, animistic, tribal, the egocentric, the absolutistic. We have to engage all of them, not just one of them. But too often, we only engage one of them. And I've been spending some time with the Mimosine Foundation in Dallas that's that works with indigenous tribal people. So not only am I a Zulu, but I'm also an, an Apache because they find in the codes of those so-called primitive people many of the influences and behavior patterns that are necessary at the sixth level. So here's the second level tribal system 
in forming the sixth level uh, humanistic system. Wonderful kind of ways. So we we have we have a lot to learn from the past in terms of how a tribal society, for example, would do forgiveness. How they would work out those kinds of things from more of a right brain, less guilt-driven perspective. So we we have a lot to learn from our past in, in that regard. Don, um, you touched on something I think really key there with the the recognition of indigenous and tribal systems and and also its relationship with um, as we've been conversing tonight a dualistic worldview or a non-dualistic unitive worldview and I, I'm just curious to hear more about uh, your experiences in the world of um, what you what you've seen out there in restorative justice, and you know I hesitate to even say restorative before I say justice, and I want to honor my late friend Herb Blake for for this. He um, he made a really beautiful point. Uh, he was one of my guests in October last year, and was a prisoner in Folsom for over a decade, and was doing amazing work from the inside. And he said, you know, Molly, restorative justice, uh, why do we even need to um, qualify it justice with restorative? You know, indigenous peoples and tribes have been practicing what, what justice really means wow. for, you know, for ancient times. So um, if we could just could, could talk a little bit more about what you've seen out there as models um, and what what you think we might want to be bringing back more deeply to uh, you know to to the, the very prevalent um, like the top of the system here in the United States. And then I'd like to also field another question tonight too. Yeah, if if you saw the uh, movie Dances with Wolves, what you saw was a what we call a purple tribal system. Uh, and that everyone got got to speak. But then, at some point, the chief announced the consensus. It wasn't like a red egocentric tribe where the paramount chief is in charge of everything. It was obviously a collaborative system where there was responsibility and rites of passage, knowing how to grow up kids that we've forgotten about, all those things that I think that we need to, to think about today as, as a model. I think uh, to restore justice even from from the bad guy having to stand in front then when the, the family whose daughter he raped and killed have at him. I think that's, that's a version of it. To find some kind of way to do compensation is yet another version of it. So justice then is a very difficult thing to maintain we're, we're in a uh, situation where the egocentric and the and the achievist orange system are are uh, dominating so I just think over the next few years we're going to see a major revolution in this country not a physical resolution even though I understand that uh, US Army Special Forces and others are preparing all kinds of tents and other things for fear of mass revolt among citizens. I don't see that happening. But there are conditions which could downshift to cause that to happen. So uh, ultimately, if we want to have a healthy system, we begin with family, for sure, and hold parents responsible. And then we shift into education and build total systems, not just to hold teachers responsible because they lack the authority to do so, but the, the entire community, the commons then, the field, assumes responsibility. I was working for Mandela's Children's Fund in Natal because they had a number of teenagers who had committed uh, horrible crimes kill people. They were in prison with the hardened criminals in this prison in uh, in uh, Natal. So Mandela got all kind of pressure from Europe about it. 
So I was involved in the team that took those kids out of those prisons. We we put them into a an old mining camp. There are, I think, two, three hundred of them. Phased them through the value systems, first in purple, then healthy versions of red, then versions of blue around the new South African, and Mandela came to speak. Then I said, well, we need now to go to the fifth level system. I said, what if we could approach the powers that are to build the dams in the Tegeli watershed, control the flow of water that's devastating every spring, and provide blue-collar jobs for people in KwaZulu and Natal? It would have been perfect, just like in Palestine, Elza Malouf and I, you know, been recommending a a uh, cement factory in Palestine. So that would convey the value systems at the stage of development of Palestinians. Back to Natal. So Beck goes to uh, Johannesburg, totally full of myself. Talked to the ANC about approving the. The Gailey watershed because it would provide jobs for these kids that they could handle and would provide for Natal, for Zulu, the kind of stabilizing influences that they need. Got turned down because ANC didn't want to support anything Lazy was doing because they were political enemies. Now, now think about that. Inability in cultures working from a large scale to arrange things that fit the natural value systems. That's how we produce change, not through sermons, not through workshops, for God's sake, not through books, but from the natural design of systems and structures Mm. that have, have the effect of doing things which really need to be done. I'd just like to take a, a moment here and open up the line, invite Bill. Uh, you're live and welcome. Bill Blackburn. Bill, are you there? Looks like he's not. Um, Bill, we'll come back to you if you're having trouble with your, with your speaker. Um, Peter, go ahead. Um, I'm Peter. Is there another Peter? There isn't. We've got your live, Peter. Welcome. Okay. Um, Don, I uh, taught a course this fall using your book, Spiral Dynamics, and I'm kind of curious about uh, do you still hold to the two-tier system of six levels each? And if you do, have you come up with any uh, colors for those um, after coral, and it's not so much the colors I'm interested in, but if you could say something about the, the values that those colors would represent. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Uh, I still hold to, to the two-tier system because, number one, Graves did. And number two, I could detect why the first six levels set up a frequency where the next level will require the codes to manage the flow up and down the first six levels, that they reach a state of complexity, like now. By today, there's so much chaos today, because we've reached the end of the first set of systems. Now, I don't go with the Mayan belief about December 21 uh, this year. And I, I, I work in uh, that country. I talked to Mayan leaders, and they said, Don, we just ran out of paper, so I don't know. I said, well, I, I think everyone who flies down here must have a round-trip ticket then. But I made the point then, I do think something indeed is happening that is separating the first tier and second tier. Graves talked about humans pre- prepare for a momentous leap. I had to ask him about that. He says, what does that mean? He says, that's what my data says. Do I have any understanding when and why? He says, no, but you'll know when it happens. Because all of a sudden, we discover that the complexity of our problems have outstripped the complexity of our solutions. 
so that the seventh code is not the con continuation of the sixth one. Something unique and different has happened. So that's why I still stay with the seventh code. Now, uh, Peter, you remember each of the systems arises from life conditions. Here's kind of a little fuss I've had with Ken Wilbur, who likes to talk about third tier. I say, but what are the life conditions that produce those? Until I know those, because this is an adaptive intelligence mapping. So from from yellow, of course, and then what we call turquoise, and then what, what the others are going to be, uh, I guess one, one can guess, a coral, I guess that makes sense, because it's also a warm color. So the... The, the key is not in the colors, but, but the zigzag that forms the pendulum. I, me, mine, to we, us, our. And we arbitrarily pick the warm colors for the agency, for the, for the me's, the self. And so we arbitrarily pick the cool colors for the collective, but that's simply uh, arbitrary. Now, also... Remember that, that these are musical notes, but we are musical chords, and it's, it's much messier than some kind of, of stair step. Most people, most companies and cultures will have a version of a warm color and a version of a blue color. So the Puritan work ethic is blue-orange. Original version of Marxism in Russia was, was a red-blue. So you always look for the cool color and the warm color. And I also need to say I don't want to leave the, the impression that I've got the whole world figured out. All these systems are, are messy. Uh, there's a lot about this model which I don't understand, and I've been studying it for 45 years. Well, I was very impressed with uh, uh, Graves's um, uh, claiming that the second tier was a being level. And uh, one of the things that I found interesting, I did a lot of work with a, a company called Landmark Education whose whole point is about being, like who you're being causes your life. And they're very interested in language. So I found their work, I don't do anything more with them now, but I found their work very helpful in terms of my own development because I was brought up with a very strong Irish Catholic Boston, uh, you know, everything's right, there's a very rigid right and wrong. And what I got out of their work was that um, it's not so much what's right and wrong is who I am is my word. And I thought that that might be something um, on the fourth level of the second tier that would be uh, sort of a, a step above, as you would say, an octave above or a chord above the blue level where there's very strict morality about right and wrong. So. I found I found that very interesting to think about. Um, the other thing that I uh, was, t was talking about in my course was um, the whole idea of these multinational companies. I've been thinking a lot about them lately and how much power they have. And it's almost like they don't have the traditional patriotism um, because their sphere of influence and their power is beyond national borders. And I was thinking in terms of a collective that would be strong enough to counterbalance them. And I was thinking that it would have to be at something, at a, one of the collective, one of the cool colors in, in the second tier. I know I'm kind of just rambling on here, but um, I spent a lot of time with your book this fall, and it kind of provoked a lot of this kind of thinking in me. So that's, I'm just saying my piece. Thank you, Thank you Peter. Many of us, the book is un unreadable, but but we wanted to put the whole <laughs> whole theory in, in the book and not just a marketing deal. Uh, Don, I'd I'd like to know if we could spend uh, another moment or two fielding another question. We have quite sure. a few. Um, go ahead, Barbara. You're live. Welcome. Barbara, Barbara Brown, you're live. Hi. Hi, sorry about the mute. Hi, Don. Welcome. Uh, Hi, Barbara. I, I see the Texas are doing well. Uh, yeah, but I've been spending the summer in Wisconsin. I'm no idiot. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm just re experiencing my first snowstorm again after 20 years, so it's yeah. been getting used to. Um, 
you know, it occurred to me as I'm thinking about justice that, that the whole American justice system is a day late and a dollar short. If if we're not fixing the the child care and the parenting and the early school systems, it doesn't matter what you do in the prisons, Don. You you just can't apply enough resources that late to fix it all. Yeah, and also I I, I found a book in London by Foils called If You're an Egalitarian, Why Are You Rich? Which means that too often our own thinking patterns betray us. That the, the day has come when we're going to have to share our resources much more so than we have not out of a humanistic reason, but out of a functional reason. And sharing resources means that we see to it that every child has access to what he or she needs. Sometimes I'll talk to a community's educators like Dallas. I say, what if only children in Dallas survived? Some strange virus came in and wiped out all the children in the world except Dallas kids. And then I'd ask, would you educate them the same way that you are today, knowing that from your kids will have to come the doctors, lawyers, football players, teachers, mechanics, farmers? I said, no, we would really see them as special. Now, why don't we do that today? Despite all the political claims about... Uh, all children have to pass, no one left behind. We changed that slogan, Barb, to each child to full potential. Each child to full potential. That's what you know, that I, have, I have a dyslexic nephew, and, and he once said to me, you know, mainstreaming is awful. I mean, it doesn't meet me where I am. Right. That's That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So this, you know, no child left behind immediately left him behind. You left him out in the cold. Yes, quite right. But if if if, if the thing were each child to full potential, and no Whatever. one left out in the cold. Exactly. Exactly. I I, I said that to Jeb Bush the other day down in Miami. He looked at me because he's presumably among, among the Bush brothers. He's the education specialist from one when his governor of of Florida. He said, Well that sounds good and I said, Well go out and do it then. Each child to full potential. Why? Because we're gonna need that diversity and those intelligences because of the crazy world that we have created for ourselves. John did, did that calculate with him at all? With Jeb? Well I gave him the uh S D level one uh, workshop manual that's uh-huh. full of all, of all kind of goodies. Haven't heard back from him, but at least I tried. But we're in in the midst of profound change. But so many are looking for the models to deal with these new things, but they've got to look through the lens of the spiral to understand what fits. So change from what to what and why. So that's why the loyal band of Spiral wizards, if there is such a thing, maybe I'm the Pied Piper. It's it's time to rally our resources and and certainly offer what we can to these these conditions. Uh, I think, and I'm trying to be humble with this. It's sometimes hard for me to be, but it, you know, <laughs> the fact is, all the evidence is there. All the scientific brain research, all the practical experiences around the world. I don't know what else we have to do. Don, you know, we we could cover so much more ground tonight, and it has been such a rich journey and conversation with you. And I know that uh, we're past the top of the hour, but I, I'd just like to know if there's anything that you might like to share about your upcoming work in this new year. Um, of course, people can go to your websites, spiraldynamics.net, as well as the center for Human Emergence, which is humanemergence.org. 
for a lot more information and resources. And I, I would strongly encourage people also to check out your books, um, Spiral Dynamics being one of them, and then of course the, the piece on um, South Africa. And, and that, the title of that again, um, Don, is Yes, The Crucible. Thank you. Yeah, we're now in the, in the third edition. So is there anything else you would like to share about what's, what's upcoming for you in the months to well, come here first, in this I new year? apologize for being so opinionated. I know I'm, I'm <laughs> kind, of, kind of calm and shy and reserved and iffies. And, and so in this new year, because it's 2012 and the Mayan calendar is about to descend on our heads, I've decided to let it all go. So that's why we're now announcing the, the master code. If that upsets some people, then come see us. Just remember, I have a very vicious dog here that guards me. <laughs> Miniature Schnauzer, whose name is Chessie, and, 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 and he will bark at you. So thank uh, you very much, Molly, and thanks to all of you for hanging in with me. Oh, Don, it, uh, it's an honor to host you tonight and, and for this great big group from all over the place. Thank you for being here with us. And uh, I will be posting the audio from this magnificent conversation with Dr. Beck at mollyrowanpresents.com. And see you next week as I host evolutionary lawyer uh, Michelle Michaud from the Michaud Law Group of Boise, Idaho. Thank you, everyone, and have a great night. Good night now.